as we do in this congregation like that. Uh, interestingly, we're going to be looking at a father's discipline of his children, in a sense, in the way that we look at the way that God disciplines us through this passage. And as we do so, we are going to begin in Genesis chapter 42. We've got a good bit of reading, as is often the case, because I can't help myself a lot of times. I will stop and make comments along the way. I'll try to limit those because we have two chapters to get through right now. Here we go. All right. I, I practiced a way that I think will help us to get through it. When Jacob learned his grain in Egypt, he said to the sons, What did you keep looking at each other? Go down and buy some of those live in Alright. That didn't seem to help. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, by the way, there's a worldwide famine, a worldwide famine that is affecting even Canaan. Why do you just keep looking at each other? Now that's not like the best fatherly discipline that you're gonna find in the Bible. But you're not often gonna find that from Jacob anyway along the way. And it just shows us that we need to point towards a greater father figure. Yeah. <laughs> he continued, although I think of like, how many times have I said something exactly like that <laughs> to my sons? Um, very convicting. He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin. Now, J Joseph and Benjamin were children of Rachel. Uh, and Joseph was the, well, sadly, the, the one that received all the preferential treatment. He was the favorite son. And that caused a whole lot of troubles when you have favoritism in a family. Now, it's sad in that Jacob now kind of puts all of his affection of favoritism, not spread across the, the other 10 or 11, but now centers it on Benjamin. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him, as it had to his brother Joseph. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. God is not selective here in who it is that is receiving the hardship. The rain falls on both the righteous and the unrighteous, and the sun shines on both the righteous and the unrighteous, as Jesus says. I love what the early church says about this. He said that we actually experience death and illness and famine just as all other people do. If we did not, people would come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land. His title has become much more official now, and he is the man. He has risen and ascended to this great place as we studied last week. The person who sold grain to all its people. That's the governor. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And this, by the way, is almost a fulfillment of the prophecy or of the dream that God has given to Joseph. God, it's God's dream, not Joseph's dream. God has given the dream to Joseph that your sheaves will stand up. And the sheaths of, of your brothers and your mother and father will bow down before you. And now he's had most of his brothers, but yet not his father uh, or, or mother, kind of bow down before him. And J Joseph must be astounded thinking, wow, after having held on to the dream for this long a period of time, of having this much to go on from the will of God, God is good to his word. 
They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. That's a word that plays out rather strategically throughout all this narrative. And it's the word that began when the brothers took Joseph's robe and brought it to Jacob. And they took the robe off of him and smeared fake blood on it. Not Hollywood fake blood, but goat's blood. And, and as they held it before Jacob, the brothers all said, under deceit, Hey, can you recognize whose robe this is? And so this word recognize plays its way through again and again, especially in Judah, as we saw a couple weeks ago. Now here, Joseph now recognizes the brothers, but the brothers don't recognize him. But he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. Why do those two things go together? He remembers the dream and then he goes into this spy allegation. Well, I think what Joseph is doing, by the way, at this point in time, is realizing, oh, wait a minute, the dream was not just ten. The dream was to have all the brothers gathered together, but yet Benjamin is not here. The dream was also to be with my father, too, and he is not here. And so I think Joseph thinks rather quickly, just as he thought of a plan right before Pharaoh, the last time that we studied him last week. And so Joseph does think rather quickly on his feet, and he thinks, wait a minute, here is a way that I can refine my brothers, bring them to full healing for what they've done, and be able to help bring about the dream that God has for me, to bring the family together again. And it's elaborate, but it begins with this idea that he has, where he begins to kind of put them on edge of thinking, are you honest or are you not? And by the way, to think about Jacob's sons as being charged with being dishonest is not the most uh, uh, you know, uh, really off the, off the mark idea because they've been incredibly dishonest with Joseph. And by the way, Jacob has gotten along throughout most of the narrative with his dishonesty. And so now comes the test. Are you, do you have integrity or are you spies? Are you honest or are you dishonest? No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Wow. The one to whom they're speaking, by the way. <laughs> Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies and this is how you will be tested. As sure as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. And so now the plan is coming together that Joseph is brewing. Send one of your number to go get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are willing, if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. You know, interestingly, 
It was not too long ago that they ignored Joseph's pleas as he was sent into custody, into enslavement. And now Joseph is under this testing, ignoring their pleas as they are all being put into custody. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. You know, what's interesting is that even after all these years, I think we're probably marching along to 15 plus years at this point. Even after 15 years, you can recognize that the guilty conscience is still alive and well in these brothers. I'm not sure where you're at in your journey to be fully reconciled to God. And when I say fully reconciled, I don't just mean a, hey, come forward and we'll say a prayer and let's just say that all is right with you. As is so often the case in so many different uh, attempts at Christianity in modern America. Uh, and by the way, that is a modern America idea that you just kind of come forward and, and we'll just kind of, let's just, let's just call it all, you know, a, you know, a, a clean slate here. But, but yet, real healing is what the Bible offers. And the cure is, is not just the statement of forgiveness, but the cure is actual repentance. To no longer be chained to either the destructive behavior or to the real grip on your conscience that that sin has, has really had in your life. And here we see that these brothers are in no way healed. Time does not heal this wound. Time does not heal all wounds. God heals all wounds. And simply trying to have time to kind of, kind of sweep under the rug the depth of their sinfulness, it's actually only going to keep coming up in many and varied different ways. And here it is rearing its ugly head that, yes, this is because. You know why this has come up? This is because of what we did of the sin that we did. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They didn't realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And imagine jo Joseph listening to all of this. And while Joseph was under the guise of harshness treating them, it's interesting that all the while, he wasn't treating them with harshness because of frustration or because of revenge. We see his real heart right now. Joseph turned away from them, verse 24, and began to weep. But then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. So all of this discipline that is going to be wrought by Joseph upon his brothers is not brought about because he's so angry and he wants to get his revenge or you know, their comeuppance, but rather because he loves them. And he sees them, and it's because of this love for his brothers that he can't even control himself in their presence. 
And we'll see this again and again throughout this interchange with the brothers. Joseph tries to keep his composure together, tries to be able to interact with them. But what is so deep in his heart as one who has been torn away from his family for so long can't help but bubble up and the tears and the waterworks begin again. He has to run into another room, wash up his face, come back, begin to talk to him again. So, so know that what Joseph is doing here as one who is trying to refine his brothers is being done out of love. But then he came back and he spoke to them. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. And this was done for them. But by the way, to put their silver back in their sack was not a positive thing. This was actually going to make it seem as though they didn't actually pay, or that they are some sort of dishonest spies that have kind of made their way in and out. They loaded their grain on their donkeys and they left. At the place, verse 27, where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver's been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank. Why? Because they've got a brother back in custody. They've got another brother that they're going to have to bring back with them, Benjamin. And if they're going to be under some sort of punishment for all of this, how are they going to bring Benjamin back? All of this is, is really kind of bringing them to a place of what is it that we're going to do? Their hearts sank. They turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? I like what the new English translation says. What in the world is God doing to us? <laughs> and, and that's the title of the sermon today. And in, in, in short, what is God doing to us? And that's often what we're always going to have to contemplate. What is God doing to us? Because what is God is doing to them is he is using the brokenness of a fallen world to be applied to the brokenness of their own dark souls. And by being able to apply the brokenness of the world to their dark souls... He's going to be able to convict and refine and ultimately repair and heal them just as he does with us. It is God who arranges circumstances. It is God who arranges time and place. Paul explained it on Acts 17 on Mars Hill that it is God from one man who made every nation of men. And, and through Abraham, all nations of men were established. And ultimately, why? So that we would seek God. And here we see it being played out but when it's being played out, we don't get it. We have a very limited perspective. And on top of that, it's happening to us. And so emotions are at play. And all we can think about is, what in the world, God? What in the world are you doing right now? But when we ask that question, we need to not try to turn outward at world events or things that are going on. Because God will use a broken world. And oftentimes, we can point fingers at that broken world and say, it's, it's because the world is so unjust. It is because the world is so uncaring that this is happening to me. But God is just using the tools of a fallen world before redemption comes to help you come to a place of redemption. And the place is not to look out, but the place is to look in. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, 
They told him all that had happened. They said, the man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us, treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We're not spies. We were 12 brothers, son of one father. One is no more. And the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. By the way, interestingly, as the 10 sons are talking to their father, Jacob, they kind of relay the story pretty accurately. They just don't tell the part about, hey, you know what? This is all happening because we tried to kill Joseph. Right? Of course, they're still not there yet. And the family dynamic is still dysfunctional between Jacob and the boys. And it is still really marked by dishonesty all around. Verse 33, then the man who is Lord over the land said to us, this is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, take food for your starving household and go. But bring your youngest son to me, so I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As there were, by the way, there's play on words here. The word for trade in the land speaks very much to the word that was used when they traded Joseph to the traders, to the merchants, to send him into slavery. And in the idea that Joseph says, and then you can come to this land and you can engage in trade. Well, it's the same word that was used when they engaged in trade by giving Joseph over to the merchants into slavery. As they were emptying their sacks, then each man's sack was, was a pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father, Jacob, said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Sometimes when we get older, we get a little bit more negative. <laughs> Then Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you and trust him to my care and I will bring him back. I think Reuben realizes that the grief of a dead son is not going to be overcome by killing two grandsons. Usually that's not really, you know, kind of nourishment for the soul when you're grieving. I don't think it's in many of the steps of grieving either. Uh, but, but I think all Reuben is doing here is showing how earnest he is that I got this. I am going to take care of Benjamin. You watch. Benjamin is going to come back, Dad. We will take care of this. But Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead. And what a, what a terrible statement. He is the only one left. I think, you know, Issachar, Gad, Reuben, uh, we're right here. <laughs> I, you know, when, uh, when Hannah and Elimelech are, are, are talking to one another, and Elimelech says, am I not better to you than, than ten sons? Well, apparently Benjamin is better to Jacob than, than ten sons. Verse, uh, chapter 43, moving on. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send your brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, 
Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Said another way, why did you tell the truth? Don't you know that you can get your way when you lie? What is that? What kind of sons did I raise? You're out there actually stating reality. Just shade it a little bit. Spin the thing. That's how you get things done. So clearly, God is wanting a refined people to be his people of blessing. What has happened with Jacob? What has happened in the land of Canaan? All of that desperately needs to be refined. And ultimately, this famine is going on and on until God can affect his refining by bringing them down into Egypt, out of Canaan, and also coming face to face with the depth of who they are and what they've done. Verse 7, then they replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know, he would say, bring your brother down here? By the way, it didn't go down like that, in case you were paying attention a little while ago. They quickly volunteered. Oh, yeah, we've got one who's not here anymore. We've got another brother. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't Joseph saying, all right, come on, you've got another brother, don't you? You're holding back on me. There was none of that. So even the brothers, as they try to kind of you know, reply to their father, they reply with deceitfulness. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. It's interesting that Judah is now the spokesperson because Judah was the mastermind of the robe and the enslavement of Joseph. All of that was Judah's idea. Judah was the champion. Reuben was what was the one saying, no, 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 I don't think you need to be doing this. But Judah championed the idea of, yeah, let's get rid of this Joseph. And now Judah's the one who is saying, no, I'll vouch for Joseph's little brother. A bit of an irony going on here, but next week, by the way, stay tuned, we'll see the real culmination of all of this. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land, and then Jacob says, all right, let's just overwhelm them. Let's bring the best of what we got. Pomegranates and figs and great delights from, from our area. Verse 15, so the men took the gifts, double the amount of silver, and, big time, Benjamin also, the most important cargo that they have. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. That is not normal, to go to the governor's house. You show up along with the great hordes of of uh, refugees at the shores of Egypt. That, that's what's happening here. There's throngs of people. Here they show up in their Semite garb, in their Jewish garb. They're recognized, of course, for, as being Jews that have come down. But for them to be invited to a state dinner at the governor's house would have been very, very unusual. And I think they realized the jig is up. Like something's going down here. And as a matter of fact, it, it says something close to that. Uh, 
It says in verse 18, Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, each of us. We found silver, the exact weight in the mouth of a sack. So we brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right. This is the steward speaking to them. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Suddenly the tide is turning and the atmosphere has changed. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him to the ground. Now it's all 11. He asked them how they were and then he said, and how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? Why does he ask this at this moment in time? I think the dream. The dream keeps coming back to him. The dream of the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. Not just the 11 stars, the 11 brothers, but the sun and the moon. Not just the sheaves of the brothers, but of the mother and father as well. And he is that much holding on to the bit of the word of God that he received that he will not let go. I mean, there's a great lesson in there for us as well, to be able to recognize that the word of God is confirmed, affirmed, and he will do it. That was what came through last week with Joseph, and it continues to be evident in his comportment, in his behavior right now. They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. So it's an interesting dinner party. I don't know who talked to whom, but I guess uh, protocol's protocol. The men had been seated before him, interestingly, in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. I think they would think, well, who knew that, you know, Simeon is older than Judah? Who, who knew, you know, that, you know, maybe even they were thinking to each other, like, well, you know, do I look older than, than Gad? Uh, you know, I, I always thought I looked younger than him. How did they know to, to you know, seat us in this order the way that they did? Uh, but, but I think something is helping them to realize that God's hand is at work. Not only has Joseph affirmed to him, I am a man who fears God. Do this and you will be delivered. The steward even says, 
Your God, the God of your father Jacob, your God has arranged for your deliverance and all of this. And now to even see that they have been arranged in their birth order must make them realize God is doing something here among us. Even though the great title and the one point that we have is, what is God doing though? What is God doing to us? When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, the final verse, verse 34, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Now, we, we don't have much time at this point to, to be able to go uh, very deeply, but as much as the main idea that is being presented here, we need to hold on to. And even as we are in the midst of a refining time in our lives, refining times, by definition, are difficult in our lives. There is something in us that God knows needs to be refined. You are not the glorious person that he has always intended you to be. That with greater and greater glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, you are all being refined into the very image of Christ through the very Spirit of God. That is a phenomenal, supernatural process that is going on in our lives. And God uses all of the tools available to him just as he does in this story. But it does very much look like a father and son in the very process of training. Now we, we have a scripture that speaks to that in Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11. I'll, I'll read the, the greater context. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? I'm reading a little bit earlier than what I have up there. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. We'll see this word discipline used repeatedly through this passage. The word discipline is what's going on here to Joseph's brothers and to Jacob and really happened already to Joseph. Discipline is the Greek word paideia. We actually have a lot of kind of fancy prep schools in America called paideia. Uh, it's where we get the word pediatrics from it. It is the idea of raising up a child in the way that they should go using all the tools that are available to you. And we often associate the word discipline, the English word here, with it because sometimes that training has a little bit of teeth to it. Sometimes it has a paddle associated with it. Well, whatever it is that is going to be able to refine you and correct you and raise you up on the path that you should go, well, God is ready to do that. Why? Because the end product is worth it. And no matter how difficult some of the travails of your life have been, when you were in the middle of them, my goodness, it made no sense. But now, as you've got a little space between you and that event, and you look back at it, and you think, what was God doing in my broken soul, through a broken world, to bring about refinement for me? And you begin to recognize very clearly what it is that God was doing. Perhaps... In your own narcissism, in your own self-denial, in, in your own self-deceit, you could not see how easily you played fast and loose with the facts. 
How easily you shaded truth so that you could never really be fully convicted. How easily you shaded truth that you began to believe the lie itself. So it was so difficult for you to even have your eyes open to actually believe the truth. Well then, God goes to work. Perhaps there was a cowardice that resided in you that was never going to allow you to be the person you were always meant to be. And you were doing all you could to fake it, hoping that one day you would make it, to put that cowardice behind you, but you were never dealing with it head on. Well, it's in times like that where God has to get in there and really refine you. Perhaps there's a pride And I know this one sadly so intimately that as things begin to go well and I begin to think, look what it is that my insight and my hands have produced. And then I stop and think, oh, yeah, yeah, but not really me. It's really all God. Well, yeah, I just said that. But what is it that I really held on to? You know, yes, I, I, I put the little kind of tag onto it as if that makes it all better. But I know the first inclination of my heart. And, and, and I know that what really did spill over was an exposure, an indication of the nasty pride and self-congratulations and, and self-reliance that are really there in my heart. And sure, maybe I'll, I'll pray it through, but it's not really being refined. Or even as I'll speak with Deb and I'll be defensive about anything that she might bring up, but then I'll learn to say it better. And I'll, I'll learn to say, oh, wow, that's a great insight. Thank you for really pointing that out to me. But all I did is learn to sound as if there was no pride. But the pride had not yet been exposed. But then God does something to completely disrupt my life or my attempt at being a husband. And, and I look at it and I think, oh, what's going on here? It's that woman that you put in my life. That's what it is. Yeah. No. God is trying to show me. No. Look at the brokenness of your own soul. I am trying to bring you to the place that you don't even know it yet, but is going to be so glorious. And I'm going to use everything that I've got at my disposal. And by the way, it is paideia. There is going to be a little bit of discipline that's going on here. It's, I'm not just going to kind of rub your back and give you affirmations until you just kind of blossom into greatness. Because I've tried that and all you did is become more proud. So I'm going to have to disrupt some things a little bit more intensely. And so our fathers, they is referring to our fathers. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Why is God disciplining Jacob and his sons? Why does God discipline us? Because he wants a holy people. He wants a chosen people. He doesn't want you to be like every other person in suburbia. He wants you to be a radical shining star. Salt and light. Completely different. You are to be a blessing to all people. You are to be distinct. That's what holiness is. You are consecrated for a very special purpose. You don't have the same purpose as all the other folks that are just bumping around around you. But you need to help them to know that that's the case. That you have a very real purpose. And God has made you holy. And God has spent a lot of energy refining you. Not for nothing, but for holy service to Him. Now when God disciplines, 
He does so better than any father can. We all probably have sat here for a moment in the sermon and thought, man, my father sure jacked me up. <laughs> he did, and you know what? All the fathers here are whack as well, and we're doing horrible jobs compared to what the father of spirits really can do. And even, even if we are kind of immersed in the word of the Lord, we're doing our best with our kids, we are falling down again and again. And that's why we all have to praise God that we have a father in heaven who disciplines us for our good to bring us to holiness. Now, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The best thing that we can do when we recognize that there is dissonance, there is discord, there is absolute chaos going on in my life right now, the best thing to do is not to think, what are all those people doing messing up my life? But to quickly think, wow, what is it that's being refined in the depth of my soul right now? Could it be that I'm not a patient, persevering person, even though that I think that I am? Could it be that I have idols in my life where I depend on worldly wealth, where I depend on worldly security, where I depend on relationships to get my identity and my esteem rather than on Jesus? What is it that God is doing right now in my life? It, it, am I so self-deceived that I, that I think I've arrived and, and I'm wondering why all of this injustice coming my way? Why is it that it just seems like going against the grain all the time, even in fellowship? It's all you people in the church's fault. That's what it is. Or maybe, maybe if we just look inward, we will recognize that yes, this is going to be painful. No discipline is. But this chastisement, this training, this God's dream for you, for me, is so much more beautiful than the keep on keeping on of what I'm trying to protect right now. The nastiness of my flesh and my self-preservation is what's causing the friction between where I am and where God wants me to be. Between my current state of just being mundane and profane versus being holy. And what is waiting for me is glorious, radiant, beautiful for all of you. What God has that is holy and waiting for you is unspeakable in its wonders. But what keeps us from it is our resistance to the pain, our resistance to the training, and our desire to deflect and want to make it about all of the other circumstances that God is using rather than in the condition and the circumstance of my own soul, my own heart. My goodness, as, as, as we kind of answer this question, what is God doing to us? You know what he's doing to you? He's taking hold of you. And he's bringing you to the dream that he's always had for you. Amen. It's an incredible dream. But that dream is one in which you are holy. You are radically different. Do not resist what it is that God has coming your way. Yes, it'll be painful. But in the end, it'll be a harvest. A harvest of peace and righteousness. If you really allow God to train you by it. Talk about this with someone this week. Talk about the ways that you've been pointing towards others, maybe in fellowship, towards other circumstances in your life, towards other things that you think are the issue, and, and to then recognize, wait, 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 wait a minute. What if I look inward? What is it 
that could be realized. What 